All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. My name is Dr. Lauren Valdes, and joining me today is Dr. David Morton. How's it going, Dave? Good. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Thanks so much for coming. So as a bit of a background, Dr. Morton's a fourth-year emergency medicine resident here at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. He's originally from Sarnia, completed medical school in Windsor, so as he described himself, a man of southwestern Ontario, and we're very lucky to have him join us today. He is currently, as of today, completing his EMS rotation and will be riding along with the pediatric transport team next month. Looking forward to it. So, we're going to talk today about bronchoconstriction, but let's start out with a case. So, we're called to the scene of a 75-year-old man in respiratory distress. On arrival, he appears quite unwell. He's tripoding with accessory muscle use. According to the patient, he has a history of asthma. He's on Ventolin puffers as needed for when he gets these episodes of, I guess you can't see quotations, but wheezes. And he has some other puffers he takes regularly, including uh, teotropium and budesonide. He recently completed a course of prednisone for what the ED doc said was something called COPD. You do, however, notice the apartment smells of cigarettes, and it's littered with ashtrays. His vitals are as follows. His respirate's 32. His saturation's 86% on room air. Temperature is 37.1 oral, heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 145 over 83, and neurologically, he's unaltered. He can speak to you in short sentences, but he has clear pursed lip breathing and he's when he's not answering your questions. Not as any chest pain or discomfort. He has no recent leg swelling, no fevers or chills, and he's not nauseated and has not vomited. He does, however, have a cough, but it's non-productive. On examination, diffuse wheezes bilaterally with prolonged expiratory time. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Morton, for that case summary. This patient sounds like they're in distress. So let's go over what the management would be of this patient during non-pandemic times. Can you take us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So we suspect this patient has COPD, probably secondary to his smoking history as well as the medications that he's on. In non-pandemic times, this patient would be considered for CPAP under the CPAP medical directive as he's in severe respiratory distress and he has symptoms of COPD. His SAT is less than 90% and he does have accessory muscle use, in addition to meeting the other conditions of the medical directive, so tachypnea, normal tension, and then greater than 18 years of age. He also meets none of the contraindications. He would be managed via the bronchoconstrictive medical directive with salbutamol. In non-pandemic times, he could be considered for either nebulized administration, um, since he does not have a fever and no declared febrile respiratory illness outbreak, or MDI. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Morton. So. Obviously, now we're living in a different world, and in order to reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus, we now use different management medical directives that are slightly altered. So how would his management differ now during the COVID-19 pandemic? So first of all, unfortunately, we would not be able to start this patient on CPAP. The rationale for this is that it's an aerosolizing procedure. Salbutamol should not be given via the nebulized route. The rationale for this is that it's also an aerosolizing procedure. However, salbutamol should still be administered to treat his severe respiratory distress via the MDI route, paying special attention to administering it using a tidal breathing technique, where the patient will take five normal breaths through the spacer rather than a single deep breath hold. Perfect. Thanks for taking us through those differences. And Dr. Morton, question of the day. What about IM epi for this patient in severe respiratory distress? So let's say that this was before the announcement by the OBEG-MAC that came out just this past Tuesday, January the 5th. So as per the bronchoconstriction medical directive, you may think this patient may be a candidate for IM epinephrine as he does present with severe respiratory distress in known asthma with a cough. You said you may think. 
That's pretty ominous. Well, although your intentions are good, you actually might be doing this patient more harm by subjecting them to this intervention. And the purpose of this podcast today is we're going to go over why that is so. Awesome. Sounds like a plan. So the first thing we'll get started with is the discussion surrounding a wheeze, because that's what makes us think about bronchoconstriction uh, up front. So let's start with, Dr. Borden, what causes a wheeze? So a wheeze, it's a, it's a continuous whistling-like abnormal breath sound that's usually heard on expiration, although it can be found from multiple different etiology of respiratory disease. All that's required is a narrowing of the airway, and we can see this in multiple different disease states, acute inflammation and asthma exacerbation, um, chronic inflammatory changes in COPD, and even fluid within the airspace, such as that seen in cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It's caused by a narrowing of the airway, and to delve a little bit deeper into the physics, when you get a narrowing of the airway, the air moving through that narrowed airway increases in velocity, thinking back to Bernoulli's principle from high school physics. With the increase in air velocity around that narrowed region, it causes a decrease in the pressure exerted on the walls of the airway. This causes further collapse of the airway. Oh boy, I didn't realize we were going back to physics today. But okay, to simplify things, a narrowing of the airways causes increased velocity of air, which causes further collapse of the airways. Got it. Thanks, Dr. Morton. And with that, can you take us through a differential diagnosis of what can cause these narrowed airways and therefore a wheeze? Absolutely. So there's multiple different um, causes of that narrowing of the airway, and it doesn't matter whether it's inflammatory versus if there's actually another substance there. So asthma, COPD, congestive heart failure, pneumonia, uh, pneumothorax, anaphylaxis, foreign body in the airway, chemical irritant exposure. There's lots of different causes of having a narrowing of the airway. So that's quite a long list. Dr. Morden, can you tell us how we would differentiate when to utilize the bronchoconstrictive medical directive with all of these different potential causes for wheeze? And once you hear a wheeze, which components of that medical directive to use? Absolutely. So when it comes to making this decision, you're going to have to use both the patient history and your, your own clinical gestalt. What you're trying to do is quickly differentiate between the different causes of the wheezes that I just explained. If a patient has pedal edema, they're on home Lasix, they have a significant cardiac history, um, at this point you should probably consider pulmonary edema and the bronchoconstriction medical directive may actually be harmful to this patient. Now if you have a young patient with shortness of breath, a wheeze, a history of asthma, you should treat this patient with salbutamol. IM EPI can be considered if the patient is apneic or requiring bagging, but as you can see, I'm describing a patient that's very sick and probably close to arrest. If you have an older patient with shortness of breath and a wheeze, even though they may tell you it is asthma, there's almost certainly a component of COPD. At this time, it'd be appropriate to follow the bronchoconstriction medical directive, and by administering IM EPI, you could actually be causing harm to this patient. Gotcha. Thanks, Dr. Morton. So IM EPI... Sounds like it's only for asthma and can potentially be dangerous for other causes. Now, with the new COVID-19 management directions, the requirement for what is needed before giving IM epi has been uh, lessened in order to reduce giving a bag valve mask. So can you take us through how that uh, directive has changed and when IM epi can be considered in the history of asthma and cough? So, Lauren, a patient that's in severe respiratory distress, has a history of asthma and a cough, at this time we can consider IM epi. So, unlike the previous protocol, these patients do not require BVM or apnea, as we're trying to avoid uh, these procedures due to the potential COVID risks associated with them. 
Perfect. Thanks for that clarification. It's hard sometimes to stay on top of the medical directive as it's written and some of the management changes due to the pandemic trying to reduce the potential spread of the virus. So thanks again for taking us through that. And now, why don't you tell us a little bit about Epi and how it works? Absolutely. So release of epinephrine causes activation of both alpha and beta adrenergic receptors. So this includes beta-2 adrenergic effects, which cause the bronchodilation through relaxation of airway smooth muscle. This is the effect that we're after when it comes to epinephrine. However, this beta-2 effect is also found in other areas of our body, as well as the alpha receptors. So since epinephrine causes activation of both the alpha and beta receptors, there's additional systemic effects. We get increased blood flow to muscles, increase in our cardiac output, pupil um, dilation, hypertension. It's, it's your body's fight-or-flight response, but we're really after that airway um, bronchodilation effect. So to summarize, epi can give you additional bronchodilation in addition to your salbutamol, but it has other effects too. Yes, 100%. So when it comes to using epinephrine for asthma, it's more of a last-ditch effort that's much lower on our treatment algorithm. Now, the evidence for it, it's minimal. It comes from one or two studies from the late 1980s that actually excluded patients with significant cardiac comorbidities. This study was published in 1987 in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And what it, what it showed was that patients that received IM epinephrine um, didn't have any increased rate of arrhythmia. However, it didn't show any improvement from these patients that received epinephrine. All it did was it suggested that it may be safe. Interesting. And how many patients were involved in this study? So, Lauren, this study was 95 adult asthmatics. And I will say that almost every guideline that's been published since has referenced back to this study as part of the rationale for using epinephrine. A 2020 update on severe asthma published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine is stated that for patients with anaphylaxis or severe refractory status asthmaticus, epinephrine 0.3 to 0.5 IM can also be given. But keep in mind, these are patients that have failed nebulized albuterol or ipratropium for one hour, IV steroids, IV magnesium, as well as non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, so CPAP or BiPAP, and then they can move towards using um, IM epinephrine. All right, so Dr. Morden, what I'm hearing is there's very minimal evidence. It is written into the guidelines, but pretty far down. So let's talk about epi and the harm of giving epi then. So as we talked about before, Epinephrine causes both alpha and beta receptor activation. So we know that there's systemic effects, including increased blood flow to muscles, increase in cardiac output, pupil dilation, and hypertension. In a young, healthy patient, they can deal with this increased physiologic strain that it puts on the body. The increase in contractility we see is due to the activation of beta receptors. What this does is it increases our heart's oxygen demand. It also increases the patient's blood pressure from the activation of peripheral alpha receptors. This increases afterload on the heart, which puts additional strain. These patients will also have an increased heart rate, which can lead to ischemia and a supply-demand imbalance in terms of oxygen delivery. And this is, in particular, something we're already worried about in a patient that is probably hypoxic. And the last thing we want to be giving to a patient with COPD or a cardiac wheeze from CHF is additional strain on their heart. Awesome, Dr. Morton. That's a fantastic walk through the pathophysiology. Are there any particular patient groups where an epi can make their disease course worse? Definitely. A patient that has CHF 
and is experiencing cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the last thing they need is that extra strain on the heart uh, from the additional catecholamines you're giving them. This could potentially precipitate tachyarrhythmia and can actually make their pulmonary edema worse. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Morton. What about a patient with COPD who is, say, over 50? Is there any harm in potentially giving these people epinephrine? There's certainly the risk of harm. These patients, although they may not be diagnosed with any cardiac dysfunction, there's a good chance that they have diastolic dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension, and this extra strain on the heart could be extremely detrimental. You wouldn't ask this patient to get up and run a marathon, which is essentially what you're putting their heart through when you're giving, giving them that unnecessary dose uh, of adrenaline. That is awesome. So let's take a step back and let's talk about patients not dissimilar from the case here where they tell you they have COPD slash asthma. How do you differentiate between the two different pathophysiologies and why does it matter? So COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the general term that describes progressive respiratory disease is typically two conditions, emphysema and chronic bronchitis. What it is is it's the result of lung parenchymal destruction and small airway disease, which is a consequence from chronic inflammatory changes. These patients typically have chronic dyspnea, cough, and sputum production, and typically they have a smoking history, although it's not 100%. Exacerbations typically present with worsening dyspnea, cough, or sputum changes, as well as wheezing. And what about asthma? So asthma is a chronic respiratory disease which, like COPD, is related to airway inflammation. However, this is reversible airway obstruction, bronchial hyperresponsiveness, and inflammation. This disease causes bronchial hyperreactivity in response to various environmental and infectious stimuli. These stimuli induce bronchoconstriction via release of mediators and metabolic products from inflammatory cells. This leads to edema, inflammation, and increase in mucus production, as well as smooth muscle hypertrophy, ultimately causing airway obstruction and limited airflow. Similar to COPD, these patients will often present with cough, dyspnea, and wheezing. However, many of the clinical um, factors uh, such as age and risk factors such as smoking are not present in these patients. It is also much more prevalent in children than in adults. Well, that sounds like a lot of overlap. So why does it matter if they have COPD or asthma? So from a black and white standpoint, pre-hospital treatment differs. CPAP in non-pandemic times, patients would require severe respiratory distress and signs and symptoms of COPD, while asthma exacerbation is a contraindication. So remember, CPAP only for COPDers. IM epinephrine use requires a history of asthma, so epinephrine should only be used in those patients with isolated asthma. But we're delving further into why. Remember that epinephrine can cause severe negative side effects. A patient with COPD often has other comorbidities such as hypertension, coronary artery disease, and diabetes. The strain on the cardiovascular system could lead to cardiac ischemia, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, or even tachyarrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia. So giving epi to a patient with COPD, who often has other comorbidities, can be harmful, even cause lethal side effects. And from what you talked about earlier, with evidence in healthy asthmatic patients, it's unlikely to offer any benefit. Would you say that that's true? I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Dr. Morton, tough question time. What about people who tell you they have asthma slash COPD? What do you believe? Well, it is a tough question. So remembering that about 40% of people who have COPD also have asthma. 
and it is considered a risk factor for developing COPD and your risk factor for a dual diagnosis increases as you age. So these are often the patients that were given a diagnosis of asthma when they were younger and then given a diagnosis of COPD when they're older. I find clinically patients tend to focus on the diagnosis of asthma when taking a history and sadly often continue to smoke. So what do you recommend with regards to treatment in this scenario? This is where the new modification of the base hospital MAC considerations in managing patients during the COVID-19 pandemic comes in. In order to help risk stratify when epinephrine could be helpful, so maybe in young asthmatics as a last-ditch effort versus harmful, so non-asthmatic patients with cardiovascular risk factors or history, the age cap was placed, but not using IM epinephrine in patients greater than 50. Well, Dr. Morton, that's quite the uh, the bottom line there. Fantastic. So IM epinephrine should not be administered to patients with bronchoconstriction and a history of asthma who are equal to or greater than 50 years of age because there's minimal benefit and risk of harm, even death. Yes, that is correct. All right. That's a pretty good bottom line. So let's wrap things up by returning to our case. So again, we have that 75-year-old man who has a history of smoking that's presenting with shortness of breath. It's pandemic times. Dr. Morden, take us through your thought process if you were treating this patient today from a pre-hospital standpoint. So there is probably a good chance this patient did have asthma at one point in his life. As we said, 40% of people have both illnesses. In reality, though, this gentleman should be treated as a COPD exacerbation. Now, if our patient has no cough, our treatment is very straightforward. We administer supplemental oxygen and follow our COVID medical directives for bronchoconstriction. This patient can take five normal breaths through the spacer while administering salbutamol. If the patient has a cough, though, we will not remove the patient's mask to administer salbutamol as that places the medical provider at risk for aerosolization and COVID exposure. The only other intervention on the medical directive pre-hospital for this gentleman would be IM epinephrine due to the history of asthma. I want to stress to you at this point, this would be the wrong decision and potentially harmful to this patient that most likely has another etiology for his respiratory distress and it would provide no benefit while incurring the risks that can be life-threatening. So remember that there's now an age cap on the use of IM epi for bronchoconstriction in order to help you mitigate this risk. Dr. Morden is our special guest. Please help us end this podcast with your bottom line. So the take-home point for our podcast today is to remember that our arsenal of medications has both the ability to improve a patient's clinical status and potentially worsen it. Be especially cautious when considering administering IM epinephrine in a patient with asthma. Unless your patient is a young, healthy patient with no comorbidities and isolated asthma, he may be doing more harm than good. If your patient is over 50 and a smoker, there is a good chance that you are actually treating COPD, whether the patient has a formal diagnosis yet or not. There is no evidence for the use of epinephrine in COPD exacerbation, and there is the potential for significant harm if you are giving it to a patient with a cardiac wheeze. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Morton. And I just want to add one quick note regarding epinephrine use in anaphylaxis. So there is no age cap for this. So again, no age cap if you're using IM epinephrine to treat for anaphylaxis. This question was asked on social media, and therefore we wanted to make sure that we reiterated this. So please continue to use IM epinephrine for anaphylaxis or suspected anaphylaxis of any age. And with that, Dr. Morton, I really want to thank you again for joining us today in our SWARP studio. And thanks again, David Arthur, for your fantastic skills. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everybody. Take care.